And then as the children are being dismissed, let me invite uh, Jody Allen to the uh, platform. Emily coming with you, Jody? Great. This is uh, Jody and Emily Allen, uh, relatively new members to our church. I mean, they've been here a good little while, but uh, not that long. They have a precious little girl named uh, Hannah. Uh, many of you know that we call uh, Jody the coach. Uh, uh, he's brought a couple of his football teams uh, into our worship service at the beginning of their season. We've had the opportunity to minister them. Uh, by the way, you'd be interested to know, uh, Jody coached at uh, University of Alabama, uh, Florida State, and then, of course, uh, several uh, high school uh, teams here in Georgia, but he's not here to talk about football. He's uh, here to talk about a wonderful gift that uh, God gave him and Emily, and I know that you'll appreciate this uh, greatly. So uh, give uh, Jody and Emily a good round of uh, Edgewood love. Guys, we're excited to be sharing this story with you today. I love telling this story. Uh, it's a story uh, not about us. We're, we're characters in the story, and we're very humbled and very blessed to be characters in the story. But this is a story about God and God's goodness and love for us. A little background just really quick. Emily and I grew up in good families, uh, in the church, Christians. Very blessed. I say this to say when we got married, there was absolutely no doubt in our minds that we wanted children and we wanted to, to have a family of our own. Uh, so we got started without hesitation doing what married people do and just we let nature take its course. Uh, you know, a couple of months went by and then a few more months and, and uh, we got a little, little bit nervous. Uh, and didn't talk about it a lot, but we started trying some things to help the process along. My personal favorite was we really increased the frequency in which we did what married people do. Uh, but we went through the whole gamut, guys. We went through uh, taking temperatures to counting days, uh, you know, supplements, vitamins, doctor's visits. You know, at the end, we were doing the IVF treatments. Uh, at the time, we were living in, in Bremen by then, and we were driving back and forth to Atlanta to uh, do the treatments. And uh, every month it was a real excitement only to be followed by disappointment. Uh, it was hard. Uh, we, we considered adoption. Uh, we brought home the book for the paperwork for the initial step and it was about that thick. Uh, we, we learned about how hard it was and, and, and my simple country self couldn't understand why we wanted to give a good home and there were so many kids out there that needed a home, why we couldn't just make it happen. Uh, but it was, it was, I understand logically that there's a process that has to be gone through, but emotionally we were just at a bad place. Uh, we, we decided we, we were going to accept God's will and just, he, he, didn't, he didn't have it in the plans for us to be parents. So we accepted that. We said we're going to be a good aunt and uncle to our nieces and nephews. Uh, we're going to continue to teach a Sunday school uh, at Midway Baptist Church in, in, in Bremen. Uh, we're going to work with 
the, the children she works with in her job and the young man I work with in my job, and that, that's, that's, that's what God wants us to do. That's what we're going to do. Now, individually, we kept secretly playing, praying that same prayer, but also adding, God, you're a sovereign God. You're an all-powerful God, and if you want this to happen, you can still make it happen, and we're more than willing. But you're going to have to do it because our hands are off. We were very uh, frustrated in a low place. I say all that just to uh, set the stage for what happened next. On Sunday afternoon, uh, December the 15th, 2013, we were at the table. We'd gotten home from church, and we were, had decided not to go to the Falcons game. We were going to watch it on TV, and I was going to the store to get some, some food to eat with it. And the phone rings. The same little phone I'm holding now. It's a little, uh, not, not a smartphone or anything. It says, Josie. Well, Josie's my cousin, same age. We grew up together. Uh, she was a twin, and we, we, we had a great time growing up, and we're pretty close. But uh, as years go by, you don't talk as much, so it's kind of unusual to get a phone call from her. So I answered the phone. What's up, Josie? And I'll never forget what she said. Y'all want a baby? Now, I went numb. I was obviously very excited, but I went in protection mode. I didn't want my wife to know this because I didn't want to get started on something like this and it would be a disappointment for her. So I said, Josie, uh, I want to talk to you about that, but I can't talk right now. I'm preparing a grocery list. i got to run to the store before lunch. Let me call you back in five minutes. Well, Josie kept on. i got the baby right here with me. Okay, good. I'll call you in a few minutes. I want you all to come see it. I finally got off the phone and looked down at Emily, and I thought, man, I did, I did really good. I, that was smooth. I'm, I'm fixing to go to the store. Yeah, right. She was looking at me. She said, what did Josie want? What was that about? What you got to call her and talk to her about? So I told Emily what it was. Needless to say, long story short, uh, we made it to Atlanta very quickly. Uh, we got there, and uh, here's what she met us at the door with. Andy. She had it in her arms. We went down, sat down. We kind of passed her around. The sweetest, calmest little baby you'd ever seen. Everybody, when you first held her, she just kind of snuggled towards you and just kept sleeping. And uh, <clears throat> when I got her, she kind of smiled. And I said, look, Josie, when I held her, she, she, she smiled. And she said, no, she's too young to smile. That's just gas. <laughs> um, but we, we, uh, we, we fell in love immediately, and, and Josie told us the story. Now, here's the story, and I want you to know, Hannah knows she's adopted. But to Hannah, in her six-year-old mind, it's what this means. She came to us, God got her to us through another lady's belly instead of her mama's. She has two moms. She has a birth mom, Mama Shelley, where she, where she came through her belly to get to her mama and me. That's all she knows right now. She didn't know anything about the circumstances, doesn't really seem to care, doesn't know about is there a father or any other family members right now. That's enough for her. And until she asks more, we're going to leave it that way. At some point in time, we'll tell her the whole story. But she didn't know it, doesn't know it yet. Okay. The story we got was Mama Shelley got pregnant. Mama Shelley was going through a hard time, had some, some difficulties in her life, some personal kind of health-related issues, and uh, the courts had gotten involved and told her, you cannot keep this baby. That's off the table as an option. So there were other options. Now, praise God, the only two I know she considered was foster care and adoption. Foster care was appealing because she could have 
possibly gotten herself straightened out and one day got the baby back. But she chose adoption because she believed that was the best thing for her child, to get a, 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 a family right off the bat, get her to that family, and let her grow up with that family. So she went through the process. She got an a, attorney in New York. The attorney had her adoptive couple in New York. It was all set, ready to go. The baby was due about December 25th. Everything was set. Now, during the pregnancy, Mama Shelley was in a very protected, very safe environment, very healthy environment for most of the pregnancy. A little before the due date, she was released to go home to get everything prepared. That's when her issues caught up with her a little bit. And uh, very unexpectedly, very suddenly, two weeks prematurely, the baby was born. Not in a hospital, not at home, but in a strange house on a couch. The EMT immediately came and took Mama Shelley and the baby to the hospital. Uh, everybody was alerted. The adoptive family got on a plane, flew down to Georgia. Uh, at that time, the attorney in New York realized that Mama Shelley didn't have representation here. So out of the blue, how, I don't know, but he picked Josie out of all the attorneys in Georgia to call to go represent this girl so she would have legal representation at the signing of the paperwork. So Josie says, sure, I'll do that. She drives over to the hospital the next day, expecting to see a warm and fuzzy, everybody hugging, everybody happy feeling. It was anything but that. The nurses and Shelley had gotten a little crosswise. Uh, the nurses were a, li a little uh, upset with her, a little uh, angry with her, uh, and it was very contentious. The adoptive family had come in right on top of that and had started asking a lot of questions, and they became a little miffed. Uh, that's when Josie walked in. Josie immediately decided, I need to get Shelly out of here. She grabbed Shelly and uh, got her to a restaurant where they could talk. The adoptive family decided they were going to pull out. They went back home. They left what they had acquired to help with the, taking care of the baby, a plaque and play, a car seat, some formula and bottles, and some pampers. That left them with no adoptive parents. Josie assured Shelly, you've got a beautiful, healthy baby. will be no problem finding some parents for her. Everything will be fine. Just relax. But the problem was what to do with the baby immediately because Shelly couldn't take it home. So Josie says, well, I'll, I'll take the baby home with me, and I'll find you. It'll be a matter of days. I'll find you some parents. So that's what happened. That's what got us there. And when we heard that story, I was trying to be very uh, politically correct. I didn't want to be pushy. I said, Josie, Emily, and I'll have to talk about this, pray about this. We're going to go home. I'll call you either tonight or maybe we'll sleep on it and call you in the morning. Josie said two things. That's fine, but I've done 3,000 adoptions in my life. And I have never seen or even heard about a situation like this come up. She said, know that. The other thing, know, is this. In our lifetime, it'll never happen again. If you want a baby, this is it. So we get in the car and we start home. And I'm trying to tiptoe around the situation and ask Emily what she thinks. And Emily says, Jody, are you nuts? Said, you want to go home and pray about this? We've been praying about this for five years. This is God's answer. So I about caused a wreck pulling over 
to get my phone out and call Josie and say, we're going to take the baby. That was 10 minutes later. She says, meet us at the doctor's office tomorrow. I said, well, what happens then? Are we going to take the baby home or just what? what? She says, I don't know yet. I said, it'll depend on the social worker. You got to meet the mother and the grandmother. We'll all get together and we'll work it out. Just go home, get a good night's sleep and meet us then. Well, we didn't sleep a wink. We, we met them the next day and it, God worked all this timing out perfectly. Josie had called me that night and told me that, that, that you might not be able to take the baby home. But so I was a little nervous. So we get there, and luckily it's me and Emily and Josie and the baby for a little while first. So Josie coaches us up a little bit and says, just act natural. Well, we'd never been to one of these, so we didn't know what natural was. <laughs> so we go back into where the nurses are, and th there Josie again is able to coach Emily. Go up there and just act like you're the mother. Help the Nurse, undress her, help her hold her while she measures her, all those things. So we get comfortable in that before the grandmother comes in. The mother didn't feel well and didn't come. So the grandmother came in, and, and it was pretty comfortable. It got warm and fuzzy quick. Now, one other thing, before the grandmother came in, the nurse was filling out the charts, and she said, oh, by the way, what's the baby's name? <laughs> well, I looked at Emily. She looked at me. We were all focused about getting the baby. We hadn't thought about a name. So... We asked, well, Emily had. Josie said, what do y'all want to name her? Emily says, well, my middle name was Caroline before we got married, and I, and I liked it. And I've always thought Hannah was a pretty name. Well, the nurse starts writing. Emily was kind of initiating conversation, and all of a sudden, that's her name. I decided on the name. Okay, yes. well, you, you did, and, and it, it happened. So we uh, got the naming done. The grandmother came in. She liked the name. Everything was fine, and we were kind of smooth. So we, we, uh, we went to, uh, to the restaurant to meet Shelly. Everything was warm and fuzzy there. Shelly came in. She liked Emily. She liked the fact that Emily was a teacher. Everything went really smooth there. Uh, the last thing, Shelly wanted to hold the baby. She did. We all started crying, and it was nice. So we, we got out of there and started home. Okay. On the ride home. I was as nervous as a cat. I think I was more nervous then than during the process somehow. I felt like we had stolen something. We were driving along, and I kept looking in the rearview mirror to see if, if somebody was coming. To, and Emily said, Jody, what are you do? What's, what's wrong? What are you doing? And I said, well, what are we going to do if a policeman pulls us over and asks us to prove that that baby's ours? We have no paperwork. We got nothing. You know, we hadn't done the home study. We hadn't had any. And, and Emily says, well, yeah, you're right. That happens every day. The policeman pulls somebody over and asks to prove that the baby's yours. So we calmed down and then started to think about, okay, how are we going to tell our family? Because we, we had chosen not to tell our families during any of this until it happened for sure. So we decided to call Emily's family that were living in Tallahassee, Florida, and tell them to get together at their nursing home where her, where her father was. We had an announcement to give them at 530. So... 5.30 comes, they're all together there. They're thinking, I got a job somewhere, and we're going to tell them that we have to move. But what we said was, we, no, we got FaceTime with them, so we were looking at them, and they were looking at us. So um, we said, no, we want to show you an early Christmas gift we got. And we turned that thing around and, and, and put it on the baby, and they saw Hannah and Stone Cold Silence. Seemed like an hour. It was really about five seconds. And finally, the little nephew, who was about six years old, said, Is that a baby? 
Did, did Santa Claus bring them a baby? Why, why two weeks early? So it was, it was real touching. Before it was over, we were all crying. With my mother, it was a little harder. She lived only an hour away, so I had to talk her into coming and seeing us. She didn't want to come. I had to virtually start crying to get her to come to see us because she was busy with her Christmas present. Uh, uh, preparations. Anyway, she gets there, and as, as she comes in, uh, she's going on and on with Emily. She's a little miffed at me about making her come, so she don't even look at me, and Emily finally says, Miss Allen, look at your son. And the biggest mistake I made through this whole thing is not filming her, because when she turned and looked at me and saw that baby, it was priceless. Uh, guys, I appreciate you all letting us share this story. Uh, I want to reiterate that this, is, this only happened after we took our hands off of it and let God have it. Uh, when we did that, he orchestrated this thing more beautif beautifully than we could ever imagine. Now, I don't know why he chose to give us Hannah. I just know he did in a way that in 24 hours, we went from kind of a carefree couple with two dogs to a family. And it was a perfect baby for us because... She never cried except when she was either hungry or, or needed changing. She slept when she was supposed to sleep. She woke up when she was supposed to wake up. And with us not having any prior knowledge or having a chance to know what was coming, we needed that. And she was, she was perfect for us in that way, and we, we thank God for it. Again, I don't know why he gave them to us, but he did. And we're enjoying raising her, and we're going to continue to do so. And... Uh, while we don't want to hurry that process, I'm really anxious to see what it is he does with her life in the end. Thank you all. Huh? Oh, yeah, there's other pictures. That's, that's one year old. The picture with the judge was when we finally got the forever date. Uh, <laughs> and uh, thank you all. I hope that wasn't too oh, much. It's great. hard. Thank you, brother. That's great. Well, thank you, Jody and uh, Emily. Um, God is sovereign. Uh, you know, that's one of the things we've been seeing in our study of the uh, book of Ezra, how God overruled even in uh, governments and uh, in the hearts of even pagan rulers uh, to accomplish his plans and purposes. So that's a wonderful story of God's sovereignty and uh, his love to this uh, precious family. And it'll be a joy to watch Hannah grow up and uh, discover her God-given destiny. Amen? And uh, that's what we trust God uh, will uh, accomplish in and through her life. Uh, I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you came in. This will be very, very brief. Uh, the sermon notes you're holding are actually the sermon notes from last Sunday. And if you were here last Sunday, I did not quite finish that message. And it's actually worked out very, very well uh, because I have so little to cover this morning uh, that I can do in just a matter of minutes as we make the transition into the Lord's Supper. Uh, but you'll notice uh, this is lesson four, uh, the work of rebuilding uh, the temple. Uh, we've been focusing in the early chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, just to remind you, uh, the book of Ezra records the return of two different Jewish remnants back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland after their 70-year captivity in Babylon. 
which came as a result of God's judgment on their uh, sin and their rebellion. Uh, but uh, although God, as we've talked about, uh, brought grief to them because of their sin, he promised he eventually would bring compassion and uh, restore them and uh, continue to accomplish his purposes through his people. So we've been focusing on that first return, uh, about 50,000 Jews uh, led by a civil leader by the name of Jerubbabel, who was a uh, descendant of, of David. And uh, they came back uh, with the permission of the Persian king Cyrus, and they came back specifically to rebuild the temple and to establish the priority of worship once again in the uh, Jewish uh, community. And so uh, we began last Sunday looking at this work of rebuilding the temple. We saw the passion of the people, how every single Jew became involved. Uh, there wasn't a single spectator. They all became participants. And we saw how that's a wonderful picture of the way the, the church is to operate, uh, with us stepping uh, to the plate, uh, with our uh, treasure, with our talents, uh, with our time uh, to invest in building up the family of God. We saw the pattern they followed, that they followed uh, the scriptures, uh, just like today as we build the church family. Uh, our blueprint is found in the scriptures, and we want to build the truth on the foundation of the word of God. And then we saw their praise to God. Uh, once they laid that uh, foundation. So it's a beautiful verse, verse 11 of Ezra chapter 3. They've laid the foundation, and they say they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And uh, you would have hoped that the story at that point would have gone, they rebuilt the temple and they were all lived happily ever after. But of course, that did not happen. And that brought us to that fourth point where we ended last Sunday, the paralysis that halted the work. And we saw there are two factors that, haltered, that halted or ceased the work on the temple. Wits ceased for, for 15 years, 15 long years. And the first factor, we said, was nostalgia from within. And you see there in your notes, just to review, the adults that were old enough to remember Solomon's temple, the initial temple that had been built, that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, instead of praising God when the foundation for the new temple was laid, they wept. They wept in disappointment, believing the new temple paled in comparison. And we talked about the fact that this infected the community with a mood of gloom and futility, that the temple to be rebuilt would never match the grandeur of the old temple or the expectations of the older uh, adults. And as a result, we looked at that passage where it talks about many of those older priests and Levites and Jewish individuals that had seen the former temple, how they, how they wept while the uh, other group of the people uh, praised God. And then we just noticed very quickly, just in review, we looked at four applications uh, to our lives today. And the first one was God's people are never to equate spiritual success with or put their trust in material blessing, nicer facilities, or great numbers. 
And we, we saw that this was actually one of the grave mistakes that actually led the Jews into captivity. They began to focus on all the external trappings of their religion, missing heartfelt worship, and trusting in those external trappings to provide them some sort of special immunity from God, from a difficulty and from discipline and punishment. And they, of course, were terribly mistaken. The second application, if you are not careful... Spiritual nostalgia, always looking back, will lead to longing for the past, complaining about the present, and dreading the future. We talked about the fact that this only produces an ingratitude for what God is doing today, but creates, uh, and creates a sideline grumbler who uh, discourages the faith of others and criticizes uh, leadership, and we looked at that. And then the third application, we talked about the fact in running the Christian race, in the Scriptures, we're never admonished to look back, but to look forward to what God has for us next. A great verse for that is in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." And then the fourth application, focus, that we are to focus on Christ-like character development that is not dependent on external crutches. If my walk with God, my joy in Christ, or my peace with God is dependent on anything external, like even these trappings right here, coming together in corporate worship, having this beautiful music choir, if it's dependent on all of that, I have to ask, how authentic is it? Now, again, we're not diminishing the importance of coming together, the importance of the music praise ministry. Those are all wonderful blessings and can uh, aid to our growth in our walk with God. But we don't want to get to to the place where we're totally dependent on the external trappings and not knowing the internal reality of Jesus living in our hearts and producing Christ's likeness. And then look at the second factor, and this is where we ended, and we'll just mention this very, very quickly and move right into the Lord's Supper. What was the second factor that caused the temple uh, work to stop? And that last bullet point there, second page of your notes, opposition from without, not just nostalgia from within that created discouragement, disappointment among the community, but opposition from without. Already struggling with discouragement from in, within, the external enemies of God attack through fear and intimidation. The weakened faith of the community crumbles under the pressure of the attacks, and the work on the temple is halted for 15 long years. Uh, let me read those verses for you from Ezra chapter uh, 4. It says, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Jerubbabel and the heads of fathers of the households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Asherdan, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Jerubbabel and Joshua, that's Joshua the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers and households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king 
of Persia has commanded us. Now, let me just pause right there and just explain what's going on, give you a little bit of the historical background. Uh, Notice it identifies these individuals that want to help them with the work right off the bat as enemies, enemies of God. Now, I know they claim that they see God, but here's the historical background. Uh, And uh, just need to give you a reminder of biblical history. Remember after Solomon's death, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom experienced God's judgment in 722 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians. And they were uh, led away into captivity. That was 136 years before Jerusalem fell uh, to the Babylonians, with the southern kingdom then being led away into the Babylonian captivity. And we're told in the Scriptures that when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and took them away in captivity, the practice of the Assyrians at that time was to take... Uh, uh, nations that they had conquered, and they would relocate them in other lands. So what happened, they began to take peoples that they had conquered, and they began to relocate them in the northern kingdom of Israel. We're talking about people from uh, Babylon and some of the other uh, or Arab uh, countries that uh, worshipped Uh, pagan gods. And it's sort of fascinating. You might just want to jot down, and you can read it for yourself, 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, There's a Jewish priest that actually tries to teach them about the true God, about Jehovah. But what takes place is they try to mix the worship of Jehovah with all the worship of these pagan uh, gods. And, and what they developed there in the northern kingdom is just an abomination uh, to God, where they're not worshiping the true God, uh, but although they claim that they are. And that's what's happening here. And Jerubbabel and, these, uh, and the Jews that have returned, they realize these people are not worshiping Jehovah. They, they do not submit to the word of God, to the biblical blueprint. Their goal is not to worship and honor and exalt Jehovah. It's just a mixed mash of all these different religions uh, that includes in it immorality, the sacrifice of their inference to these pagan gods, and all these things that God uh, detests. And that's why they say with such strength, we don't have anything in common with you, and, and we're going to build. Well, of course, what happens is that even incites their enemies more. Uh, once the enemies see we can't get into their camp uh, to sort of bring compromise and to bring them down, uh, they begin to intensify their attacks. And we read in verse 4 of Ezra chapter 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then you jump down to verse 24 and it says, then uh, work on, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which was 15 years later. What is the application today? Very quickly, before we move into the Lord's Supper. First, no work for God will be without opposition, and every tactic will be employed by the enemy to stop God's work. We just need to realize that. 
That's an inevitable reality in the Christian life, and we'll never escape that on this side of eternity. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of our God rests on you. Apparently, the Jews made the same mistake we made. You know, often after a, type of ba- a time of backsliding, when you're restored to God, you're over- oh, so overjoyed with God's forgiveness and the sense of God's presence, now you think you're you know, you, all your difficulties are in the past. What a warped way to think. <laughs> because uh, once you get right with God, you just become a more visible target for the enemy. And he's after you to bring you down and to damage your testimony, to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. The second application, overcome fear of the enemy by faith in God. Overcome fear of the enemy by faith in God.